Thanks, guys. Why don't you go ahead and be seated? I don't know why so many people come to the first service, but you guys are the livelier service this morning. That's good. All right, so let's start with our memory verse for this series. You got a card in your bulletin, so pull it out. And um, this is the only one where where it'll be paragraphs. All the rest of the memory verses for the rest of the year will be like one or two verses, and we'll review the one from last series uh, in just a a little while in the sermon. But this is a uh, memory verses um, that span for the whole year, okay? Um, Which doesn't mean you have to wait till December to memorize it. All right, so let's read it together. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You will notice there's a couple translational differences between this and the Pew Bibles and, um, It's from the older NIV translation, which I think is more right in this case. So that's why I've retained the wording in this one, because I I do think it's more accurate to the original. Um, So as we enter—we're entering this series about how um, God has given us everything we need, which is absolutely integral for us to be free of mammon, to be free of worldliness, to be free of idolatry. We can only give up— our mistress who chokes us in our sleep when we realize how ugly a thing that is and how beautiful and how full and how gracious and giving a God it is we're actually serving in Jesus, even though his way of doing things is not what we would normally pick because we have absorbed so much from the world. That which is truly of God seems so foreign to us. Now, One of the ways to think about what this passage is saying is to think about why most people, if they played sports, why they really loved one or more of their coaches, or if you ever went to school, why there's usually a teacher or two that you really loved. You had those like your favorite teacher. Now, for some people, their favorite teacher is the one that like let them skip class the most. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? And I was actually, when I watched the Super Bowl last week, I was actually kind of— Um, one of the most interesting parts of the entire game for me, and it was actually quite an interesting game, was actually at the end, where like everybody came on the field, and like Bill Belichick went over to Tom Brady, and they like hugged, and then they talked to each other with their face sort of uncomfortably close to each other, and then 
Like there was this, this huge amount of like clear affection between those two, which I mean, I didn't think that kind of love was possible between two people who didn't have souls. You know, but, <clears throat> just kidding, just kidding. But you can see this, 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 there's this long history of Brady being on that team and Belichick coaching him all that, and he's finally come to this, this very high achievement, most Super Bowls of any, any quarterback ever. And at that moment, he felt so grateful about what he'd been able to accomplish with his coach and what his coach had been, been able to help him become capable of doing. Same thing is true of like your favorite teacher. For a lot of us, our favorite teacher, if you had a really troubled background, that was the one that just like treated you well. But I remember Lloyd saying in a couple of his sermons so far that there was a math teacher that like stayed after with him and like got him going in math. It was like, you can do this, right? And most people have some teacher or coach that taught them that they were capable of something they didn't think they were capable of that helped them become something they didn't think that they could become, that gave them, brought capacity out of them that they didn't even know that they had. And that gift, <clears throat> that gift of creating, creating in us what we didn't have formed in us, transforming us away from the negative ways we transformed ourselves into what we really could be, that is as much a gift as anything else. The fact that I've had coaches that made me run until I threw up doesn't take away from that the fact that that was a gift. The fact that I would lay, lay awake at night with muscles aching so much in places I didn't know they existed, that was all part of a gift I was being given. And the fact that I worked as hard as I felt like I could possibly work <clears throat> was part of the gift that I was given. I didn't know that when I thought like I was going to die, I wasn't going to die. And then I was at another level where I thought I was going to die, and I didn't die then either. And it was, a, it was actually a gift to sh be taught by somebody else like what I was capable of. I didn't even think I knew I was capable of those things. And you see, this passage in 2 Peter doesn't just say that God has given us everything. It's more specific than that. It says that His divine power has given us everything we need for life— that is everything we need for our life and eternal life and salvation as well. And godliness. That is, you and I actually growing in real righteousness. Not self-righteousness. Real righteousness that looks like Jesus and is enough like Jesus, it can be called Jesus-likeness. And since Jesus is God, godliness— that that is a real thing. And our proper fear of sliding into self-righteousness oftentimes keeps us from, from absorbing and believing and actually talking like the Bible talks about godliness and, and what can really happen in us. And one of the things that Second Peter focuses on is that we have no idea what we're capable of through God's power, His promises, his strength, his truth, the knowledge of Christ. We have no idea what we're capable of in terms of actual, real godliness. But he has given us everything we need for godliness. Right? 
Do you believe that? Are you willing to believe that? So the, the first thing you say is, like, how, what do you mean, how has he done this? And it's important because if you don't know how he's given us everything we need, you can't proceed on that basis towards what he wants to give us. If you don't know how, if you don't know how he's given us everything we need so that we can become godly, then you won't, you won't follow him into it on the basis of how he's made it possible. Does that make sense? And what this passage tells us is the way God has made godliness possible, the way he's given us everything we need for both life and godliness is through what, what Peter calls the knowledge of Christ. That is not primarily knowing Jesus in your heart. That's not what he means. I'm not saying you can't know Jesus in your heart and know Jesus in a holistic, spiritual, mystical way. You can. That's just not what Peter means. What Peter means is that you know what there is to know about Jesus. You know who he was, what he was like, what he lived, what he said, what he taught, how he acted, what he's accomplished, what that means, on what basis you can proceed, that that is this thing called the knowledge of Christ. And that in that, he has made godliness actually possible. Okay? Now, um, the reason why that might not be the most intuitive thing in the world is because that's not how the verses start, right? The verses start with, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness, right? But then it says, through, that means on the basis of. So God has given it powerfully, but it's on the basis of something. Like, His power worked a particular way. And the particular way His power worked is not by directly making you godly. You see, because there are a lot of people who believe in Jesus, and they're kind of hoping that that's what's going to happen. And so the only thing that they know to do is maybe pray to become more godly, and then they're hoping it was just by his divine power that just like directly, you'll be more godly. And that's actually not what this passage says. It says that his divine power has given you everything you need for godliness, and he's done it through the knowledge of him who called us. That is Jesus. Right? So you can see this in this passage. <clears throat> now, to follow the logic of this passage, one of the things that's, that is kind of obvious is that there's one preposition that's different than all the rest. Through, 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 by. <clears throat> some, there's some sentences in the Bible that feel like they're kind of wordy. But remember, paper in these days is like $60, $60 a page, okay? So, so people reasonably try to like compress things. And there's some places in the Bible that fill things out, but there's other places in the Bible that beautifully summarize. And this is one of those passages where an enormous amount of truth is summarized. So that if you memorize these three paragraphs, you will mem memorize an entire education about what it means to know and follow Jesus and what God has done. And so he says that all of this was done by his own glory and goodness. Okay, so you confused yet? His divine power has given us everything that we need by his own glory and goodness through our knowledge of him who called us. Okay, so let me give you an example. So last night I took my two older daughters to a movie. Okay, we got in to the movie because I paid the money. But that's not why we went to the movie. We went to the movie because I wanted to take my daughters out for a good time to see a movie with them. Those are totally different things. One is, out of where did this gift come from? And the second is, on what basis, what resources was necessary to accomplish it? And you see, what, what Peter's saying is, is he's saying, because God is glorious and virtuous, this happened. It was by 
his own glory and goodness. So in terms of his moral or virtuous character, he is maximally good. And in terms of his magnificence, he is maximally glorious. He is amazing. And because God is that great, by means of his power, he decided to give us everything we need. And the mechanism and mode through which he gives us that is Christ, and namely, knowing Christ. You can see it easier if you look at how the same thing is said twice, basically, in this passage, right? In two places, it refers to what it was in God that made this happen, but just two different things, right? Then, that he has given it to us, a reference to grace. Whatever you have, you have because God has been generous. So because he's maximally good, maximally great, or because he has an enormous amount of power and he can bring about anything he wants to bring about, for both those reasons, he gave. And he gave what you needed. Now in the first reference, it's, it's general, right? It's setting up what he's going to say later. It's just everything you need. What do you need? Everything. Everything you need, he's given everything you need. There's nothing that you need you don't have. You have way more than you need. In the second section, he gets a little bit more specific about exactly what we needed. He has given us his very great and precious promises. This is partly because if God just did things in the world and he didn't tell us he was going to do them, the likelihood that we would understand what on earth was going on is very, very low. And so God is a revealing God. He speaks and shows himself. And that's why we have things like the scriptures and the word of God in Christ. That is that God is speaking and showing himself so that we as sinful, blind, closed-hearted people can really see what he's doing. Otherwise, we wouldn't see it. And so he, it says that because God was very good and magnificent, he gave us his very great and precious promises, of which Jesus is the fulfillment of all of them, so that it would have a result. So the result is for godliness, for life and godliness, or that through these precious promises that he's given us on the basis of his goodness, that we would participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. See what he's saying? Because that's what godliness is. Godliness is that in Christ and through knowing him, the Holy Spirit comes to be in and with us, who is himself God, and he interacts with our very nature, and we get to therefore participate in God's very being. Not so that we become gods, but so that, that we become—not that we become like him in his magnificence, but that we become him, like him in his virtue. We don't become godlike, we become godly. And that, becoming godly, it should actually be just as inspiring, like emotionally incredible, as if he made us gods, which he isn't gonna. But the fact that we would be virtuously like him in some meaningful way, the fact that we think that's less cool than if we were like Thor or something, just shows how morally confused we are. But if we saw the beauty of his goodness for what it was, and to see that he's given us everything we need to be drawn into that so that we could participate in the divine nature of his, 
of his goodness and his virtue and his moral beauty, we would, we would respond to that like if I told you you could have the superpower of your choice. Now, <clears throat> the central idea there then is how, does, how do these, these four things, right? What's right in the middle of those is the main idea that those are given by means of our knowledge of Christ. And then you can see this if you just read the whole passage with eyes to see that. It's everywhere. So in verse 2, he's just saying, hey guys, grace and peace to you. But he specifically says, grace and peace to you be multiplied, or yours in abundance, through the knowledge of God. Do you see how he sticks that right in the, right in the hello verse? So that you'd be on to it. Then he says what we've already read in verse 3. Then in verse 5, he says, therefore, now that you know all this, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to your goodness to goodness, knowledge, right? And then in verse 8, he says, if you possess these qualities with increasing, in an increasing amount, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in what? In your God, he could have said godliness. He could have said salvation. He could have said in your best life now, but he didn't. He, what he, the phrase he chose was so that you could be productive and in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Why? Because he wants you to see the, the, the logic through the passage. He wants you to see how God has given us everything we need in our knowledge of Christ. And the reason why that's important is because we, we shouldn't be over-mystifying this, right? There's a lot of people who want to, like, connect with the energy of the universe or something, or, like, feel something incredibly powerful inside them, or, like, feel like if they, pr they could pray for something and then it'll just, it'll just happen. And you see, one of the reasons why that's so frustrating for people isn't because God isn't there, and it isn't because God doesn't do this work, and it isn't because God hasn't given you everything you need for godliness. It's just because God has picked a way to do things, and he's explicitly told us how he's doing them, and he's given us Jesus as the perfect way for it to be done in us, and then he's invited us to go along with the way he's doing it, and if we change it, we don't change. And he doesn't like redo reality so the way we want to proceed, we can proceed. He just keeps inviting us to proceed on the way he proceeds. Right? Now, what that means is, is that um, the, the knowledge of Christ is demonstrates how God has given his power and out of his glorious goodness, a knowledge of Christ to change and transform us, to give us the gift of godliness, right? And it basically goes this way, right? God is glorious and virtuous. Out of that character, he gives his power. What he accomplished with his power is he displays his promises, he gives Christ, and then he draws us and calls us to Christ, and th then he shows us in Christ how we make every effort to add to our faith, what we should add to our faith, or in a couple verses later, to be eager, abundantly eager to make our calling and election sure, right? And when you realize that, like that begins to make sense of what it is we're doing here, and that it's not this overly mystical kind of thing. It's actually very straightforward in a knowledge of Christ, now, the question is, okay, let's say I got that straight. Okay, now what? Well, it's just the next verses is now what, right? He says, okay, if it's true that God has done all of this stuff, what are you doing? And he says, here's what you're doing. 
right? What we're doing is we are making every effort to possess the virtues of godliness in increasing measure. That's what verses 5, 6, and 7 say, right? That's what we're doing. We're making every effort possible to possess those virtues in increasing measure. Now, there's something kind of interesting about this list. All of the virtues are mentioned twice, right? Now, if you're writing with a quill on expensive paper, why would you do that? If, if what you want to do is you say, listen, I, I want you to grow in virtue. Okay, so I'm going to list a few of them, and then you just do a more, okay? And then you'll be better. Won't that be great? Then you would just write a list. Like, so, like for example, in Galatians 5.22, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He doesn't say um, love and add to love gentleness and to gentleness kindness and to kindness— Paul doesn't do that. Is Peter just more wordy? Well, generally speaking, blue-collar people are not more wordy than people with PhDs. Okay, as a general rule, right? Paul had the PhD. Peter's the blue-collar guy, right? He's getting right to it. So why does he do it? Right? And it's, it's very simple. It's because it's building, right? That's why. It's because it's building. Because he's not saying, do these six things. He's saying, start with faith. Start with believing in and trusting Jesus. You can't get anywhere in terms of what you're meant to be and what you're really capable of if you don't start with believing in Jesus and believing you're wrong. You've got to start with repentance and faith. You have to believe that no eye has seen or mind has conceived or has entered into the mind of any person what God has really prepared for those who love him. That is Jesus crucified and risen. That is whatever, however you think the world works apart from how Jesus has acted in history, you need to let it go. And you need to trust him. And when you trust him, then you ask the question, what is good? What is virtuous? And the main way to answer that question is, what has Jesus said is virtuous? And what did Jesus do that was virtuous? And here's why that's important. Because it's not till after that he says, add to your virtue knowledge. And it's for a very specific reason. Because one of the ways human knowledge goes awry terribly is because we don't actually really seek knowledge ethically. One of the fundamental ideas in the Bible is that you have to be good before you can be wise. And that multiplying our education will never form our character. It will increase our technologies. It will do all kinds of really neat stuff. Some of it very helpful. It will not form our character. And people used to know that. It's one of the reasons why universities were created with humanities departments. Because they thought that there was another place you learn how to be human outside of learning and utilizing the natural sciences. And so you start with Jesus. You find out from him what is good and virtuous. You fill out the why questions with knowledge. Knowledge in Christ. You add to knowledge. What's next? Godliness, right? Self-control. Oh, sorry, yeah. Right. So, okay, so because, because why? Right? Because if you know what's, if you believe in Jesus, you know what's right, and you, right? And you know why. Think about this. Okay, so we had the marriage conference. There were like 160 people at the marriage conference. It was really cool. And I was in a class on um, dealing with conflict with your spouse. Okay? And you could apply this to your parent, kid, whatever, right? And there was this place where they're like, if the argument is kind of going awry, one of the things that you should do is what's called a reparative statement. 
okay? You should do a reparative statement, which would be something like this. Okay, let's, sweetheart, let's stop for a second. I don't know how we got attacking each other like this, but I know this started with you saying this. What is it about that that you're hoping that I'm going to hear in this conversation? Because I don't think I've done a very good job listening so far, right? Now, is that a really, really good thing to do in a heated argument? This means yes, this means no. <laughs> yes, right? It is, that's what you're supposed to do, right? Okay, so then, why are people so unhappy? <laughs> right? People are unhappy because they cannot actually get that paragraph to come out of their face. <laughs> that's why people are unhappy. You can't get yourself to say it, right? I mean, how many times do you walk by somebody who did something good and you, like, affirmed them in a non-flattering way? Right? I mean, there's so much stuff that we believe, that we know is virtuous, that we understand why it's virtuous, and we just don't—we just don't do it in the moment. We just—it's because we lack self-control. And the minute you understand what's good, true, and right, and you're beginning to build some convictions around that, you need to start getting engaged in the discipline of doing it and building the self-control of, like, I'm not going to do what's a, what's a vice. I'm not going to escalate this argument. I am going to try to make some kind of reparative statement right now. Right? Self-control. But then what happens after you, like, you succeed on Monday, right? You fail on Tuesday, right? Like, your self-control, like, runs out really fast, which means after self-control, you need to add perseverance, right? You, it, it's not okay to, like, like, well, sweetie, when we argued on Tuesday, I was, like, a really virtuous person, so I'm going to let you have it tonight. Like, that's not how it goes. No, every night, right? So, until you stop arguing, you have to be virtuous, which means you need self-control and perseverance, right? Which leads to trying to bring all that together in something that looks like godliness, right? And then you, like, weaponize that with good emotion, right? Like, actually seeing people as part of your family and having affection towards other humans like they're actually your brothers and sisters, especially within the body of Christ. And only after you do all that kind of gets in place, can you actually think that you're going to be, do it, be able to do this thing we call love? Do you see what he's saying? Now, there's actually some good news to the fact of that building, right? Now, before we get to that, I need to say something about love. When I was in college, I remember getting in the car with a pastor who was— um, attempting to mentor me at that time. And he asked me this question, like, right when I got in the car, he goes, Nick, is love a feeling or an action? Is love a feeling or an action? Right? And I was like, I know the answer to this. An action. He's like, that's right. I was like, yeah. And I proceeded on the basis of that falsehood for like 15 years. Okay? And it served me better than the alternative falsehood that love is a feeling. Love is not an action, and love is not a feeling. The reason why this confuses us is that we have lost an incredibly important human category called a virtue. Okay? A virtue is a capacity that exists within the character of a person. Okay? So you have, a, you have an intelligent existing being that is a person. God is a person. We are persons. We're very different kinds of persons, but we both have personhood. Right? Persons have— Characters. Now, 
God's is eternally static. His character's always been good. It's always going to be good. His character doesn't move around. Ours has to be formed, right? But we have things that are part of our character. Those things that relate to what is good, true, and beautiful rightly within our character that we embody are virtues. And if we have those virtues, they will produce the appropriate feelings, and they will issue forth in the appropriate actions. And so if we are people that are filled with the virtue of love— we will act lovingly, and we will have loving feelings. And it is extraordinarily detrimental to believe that love is a feeling or an action, when it isn't. But what that also means is this, that love can only be understood when it is defined by the other constituting virtues around it. Because love is the queen of the virtues. But because love is the queen of the virtues, she's also the most general of the virtues. Which means she requires something defining more than any of the other virtues. If I tell you, what is the virtue of honesty made up of? Most people are like, I think it means you don't lie constantly. Right? Or patience. You know, don't blow up at people. Right? And maybe it's more, it gets more refined than that. It's people, people like have a look on their face like a cow looking at a closed gate, though when you ask them what love is. In a way different than some of the other virtues. It's because love is the most general. So one way to think about love is, is that she's a queen who has like eight sisters. And when she's with her eight sisters, she knows who she is. But whenever you like take her away from her eight sisters, she like forgets who she is. And the other sisters are the other cardinal virtues. So her sisters are prudence and honesty and fortitude and temperance and prudence and, right? And when they are around her, she's like, oh, this is who I am. But the minute you take love away from those sisters, she's like, who am I? I think, oh, am I a prostitute? I think I might be a prostitute because I'm pretty and I'm dressed really nice. And you see, if you go outside of the knowledge and character that is formed by faith and virtue with the knowledge of Christ, filled with self-control and long-sufferingness with godliness and brotherly kindness, if you take those away and you say, what's love? And you go to where love is practiced without those things, what you find is hatred. You find dishonesty. How many people have been lied to by somebody who's supposed to love them? How many people have been betrayed by somebody who's supposed to love them? How many people have had a person who's supposed to love them not brave enough to love them? You just go through all the virtues and how they're supposed to feel to what love looks like, and you start knocking those down, and you realize that the love girl out there looks a whole lot more like a forgetful prostitute than the queen wrapped up in all the beauties of virtue that she's meant to be. And that's why Peter is telling us, Christians, listen, you can't, you cannot live in love. Not the way God sees it, not the way it is in his magnificent and virtuous character unless you proceed to it, right? The, the pop culture example of this would be um, the movie Frozen, right? So Elsa has this incredible—she's love, right? She has this incredible power, but until her sister helps her figure out who she is through her own self-sacrifice, all of her power is incredibly destructive. She freezes everything cold. And when— her sister virtue steps in and shows her what self-sacrifice is. At that moment, she finds herself. 
That's when she realizes who she is. That's when the memory of her true character comes back to her and she can become herself, right? Which, which means that for those of us that f- just feel like we're not very loving people, like you just know in your relationships, you're mostly interested in what you're going to get out of this. People mostly annoy you, right? There's actually really good news for people like you. Um, and if, and, and the problem is, is that that's pretty much all of us. Okay? You want to know, you, you know who the unloving people in the room are? They're the ones that are breathing right now. Okay? And the, the reason why that's important is, is that if you want to become more loving, and you've tried to be more loving, and you just find it's just more selfishness inside of you, you're like, I'm going to be really loving towards my spouse, and then the next time you have an argument, you are like screaming at them again. Right? You're not going to succeed by just trying to be more loving and be like, God, please help, please make me more loving. God's like, oh, you want to be more loving? Okay, then get in my program. Here's my program, right? Because I'm magnificently glorious and incredibly good, out of my divine power, I've given you everything you need for life and godliness. It is found in a knowledge of Christ so that you can receive that knowledge of Christ and receive what I've given you through the good and precious promises I've given. And what that means is then you then come under that knowledge and believe it and then add to it virtue and then add to it all the way along. And what that will produce as you trust in Jesus and look at the one who is loving, as you understand how all the virtues function together and find themselves at home in the character of Jesus, and as you then add to that knowledge of why is that good, true, and beautiful? Why does it work that way? And why does God do these things? And why did he promise that? And why did—how is this a fulfillment of that? And then why does he place it this way? And why is freedom defined this way rather than this way? And how does this—and you're like, oh— and then you start growing in self-control, and then in long-suffering, and then in mutual affection. It reforms your heart from nothing. It, it changes you. It, it takes the couch potato and turns you into an athlete. It's, it's, it's useless to sit on the couch and be 974 pounds and be like, I'm gonna run a marathon. Listen, love is a marathon. Love is a, is a 4140. Love is a demanding difficult, brave thing. And you, we're just not going to do it with one foot in mammon and one foot in Jesus and doing whatever program we want and hoping we'll be loving and praying that God would make us nice and really that our spouse would be nicer. And like, this is not how reality works. And Jesus has been so explicitly clear. And you can listen to that as like an angry like tirade towards you, right? Or you could be like, oh, I've just been stuck. There's a way to get unstuck. I've been in this rut and I can like just turn this way and bloop. I can be like, I can be on track. Because Peter didn't write this book so that we could become more depressed. He wrote this book so that we could understand the paths of freedom and power and strength and blessing that God has given us. Does that make sense? Right. So lastly, how does this, how do you, how do you do that without it becoming something terrible? Because if what we're going to do is work really hard to be good people, right? That's one way you could hear that, to say, um, we're going to make every effort to be virtuous and good and self-controlled and, right? And it's very easy. I mean, that highway has a lot of exits to self-righteousness, right? And pride. So how do you actually do it so that in seeking these things, it'll produce life and humility and not anger, more frustration, more temptation to go back to worldliness and so on? 
right? Peter uses a really kind of strange statement in verse 10. He says, Therefore, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. Now, being all the more eager is a more emotional phrase than make every effort, right? Make every effort is like run the sprints as hard as you possibly can. Yeah? Be all the more eager means like be really emotionally into it, right? To do what? He says to make your calling and election sure. Why does he say that? He could have said your salvation. He could have said your knowledge of Christ, right? That's the theme. Why not hang with the theme? Why make it more literally complex? And, and the answer is, is that the concept of calling is really important. Remember in verse 4, he says that he's given us everything we need for life and godliness through, and he doesn't say the knowledge of Christ like he says in verse 2. He says, through the knowledge of him who called us by or out of his own glory and goodness. That is, is that out of God's gloriousness, morally and magnificence, he called to us first. The whole concept of the doctrine of divine calling is that God initiates everything. And so, when he says, and an election is the idea that the calling happens because of a choosing. That is, again, God acting first. And so when he says, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure, he's, what he's saying is he's saying, God has done these things, and when we respond to them, what we do is we reveal God already working, what he's already doing in us, and that we're bringing out, that is, we're proceeding on the basis of his graciousness, which tends to lead us away from self-righteousness and towards thankfulness and joy, which leads to humility. That is, the mentality you do this with is really, really important. Now, you can see this right in the verse we had for the last series, right? And if you haven't memorized, you can say it with me. Right? Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to your good purpose. Do you see how that says the exact same thing, just in different words? How, we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, right? How, how eager are we to be about this? So much that it can be referred to as with fear and trembling. When people are afraid and to the point of trembling, they're very serious about something, right? In this passage in Second, in Second Peter, it's just the positive version of that, to be very eager, right? And you could actually put the two together. I don't know if you ever played in a game or done a competition that was big enough that you were kind of terrified and really excited about what was going to happen at the same time. So um, to put language to what we're doing, um, what, what the passage is calling us to do is what you might call gracious striving. Working as hard as you possibly can on the basis of grace or God's generosity or what God has already done first. And part of the confusion that comes out of this is a very real confusion that Christians have had about how we follow God for a very, very long time. Because in the Bible, especially in the book of Romans, there's a place where the Apostle Paul says— he says, um, salvation is by grace, through faith in Christ, and not by works, so that nobody can brag about it, right? Because what Paul is saying is, is that if you believe the gospel the way it really is, it's not going to produce self-righteousness. It's not going to produce pride. It's going to produce humility and love is what's going to produce. And he says, so therefore, what you need to understand is that we come to God or God saves us by simple belief in what God has done in Christ, Right? 
and it doesn't come by our works. Now, this is where it gets a little tricky, because essentially the Bible uses the word work in two ways. One is that works equal merit, right? So if you go to work for like two weeks, and you have an agreed-upon salary, at the end of two weeks, you expect to get paid, right? At the end of two weeks, you expect to get paid, right? And you don't go, well, if you want to pay me, right? You, you, you don't lay yourself upon their grace. Like, you worked, you expect to get paid, because work produces wages, right? And in Romans, the, the cheeky little thing that Paul says is, you're right, but the main work you've done is sin, and the wages you get paid for, for sin, is death and hell. So are you sure you want your ungracious, deserved paycheck? Right? And he says, no, I'll take the one he's going to give in Christ, if that's okay with you. Right? Now, the other, however, that's not the same thing as working in terms of eager striving. Those are different things. You can work really hard at something and not think that it's making you a better, like you're better because of it and everybody should think you're fantastic. It's kind of like when I take the trash out and then like I expect my wife to like notice and say something. I'm supposed to take the trash out. I'm not supposed to do it so that I can win points, so that I can throw it up in her face in an argument. Like, well, I take the trash out. Yeah, I'm supposed to. Right? Or like, I, I've stayed with you these 18 years. I married her. I'm supposed to stay there till I die. Or she kills me. <laughs> right? Like that, you said, that's just part of it. Right? And so for, for example, let's take reading the Bible for a Christian. If you like, ha, like stay up way too late on Sunday and then you don't read the Bible before you go to work and blah, 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 and you, the whole day goes by and you're like, you're, you're laying down for bed, you're super tired, you realize you didn't read the Bible, right? I know I'm assuming a lot, but just go with me on this, Okay. How do you, how should you feel? Right? See, for, for a lot of Christians feel, would feel guilty. They'd be like, oh man, I didn't read the Bible. I can just imagine how disappointed God is in me. Right? Or worse than that, right? That's crazy. Right? The level at which God likes you, he likes you in Jesus Christ. Okay? How much does God like Jesus? Right? He's my beloved son. Shut up and listen to him. Like, he likes him right? And so that is how much you're liked in Christ. So if you didn't read your Bible today, and you're one with Jesus the Christ, how much does God like you? You didn't read your Bible today, right? You may have even cussed, and you're one with Jesus the Christ. How much does God like you? He likes you as much as he likes Jesus the Christ. That's how much he likes you. You get it? But how you still might have a negative feeling, like, shoot, I really missed out on what could have happened if I would have listened to God's words today and made them part of my life and allowed them to have their transforming effect. That would be a perfectly sensible response. It's like if you don't go for a run and you wanted to exercise because you have certain exercise goals. You're like, you don't go, oh, I'm a terrible person morally. You're not a terrible person morally. You're just not more in shape than you were, and you're a little in shape, less in shape than you could have been. In that sense, the gospel has—the gospel saves us, right? The, 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 our striving is not to earn anything. Our striving is so that we can— in the knowledge of Christ, through the power that he gives, become something. And becoming that something is far more possible than you believe it is. It is, 
It is so, it is such a sad thing how little godliness the world gets to see on the basis of how much godliness is actually possible in human beings. We, especially evangelicals who believe very strongly in God doing the saving and that we, we still are sinners and that we sin all the time and we, we feel like that should be the basis of our humility. That should be the basis of your humility. The basis of our humility is that we're saved in Christ alone and that's all. Because what that ends up sometimes leading to is we believe so much in the dep- our depravity, so much in sinfulness, and we're so aware of it sometimes that we— we think that, like, we're somehow more virtuous because we're more in tune with our failures and actually growing in godliness. The, the, the Bible claims that in an extraordinary amount of godliness, Christ-likeness is possible. Through his divine power, he has given you everything you need for godliness. Real transformative, astounding Christ-likeness. And one of the things that that has to do is just wake us up to the fact that, like, we let ourselves off the hook way too easily. Our imaginations are so small. And it's partly because worldliness has our imaginations on everything else than us, us looking virtuously like Jesus because of all that he can do in us. And so the Apostle Paul can say things like, I worked harder with, I worked harder than anybody, referring to his growth in godliness and his work in ministry, not at all contradicting that his works don't matter at all in his standing before Jesus. He wasn't trying to get more saved. He was trying to be more like Jesus. And that, it shows our real hearts, having been already given salvation— how much we are still willing to do just to be like the Savior. Right? Think of what it says about us. If the Savior saves us, and we do very little to be like him, and we're pretty comfortable with that. Right? But part of gracious striving, this is, this is the last part we'll do today, is that you see, in the first, pa- the, the second paragraph, Paul basically says, do these things to grow in virtue and godliness, right? But that's not what he does in the third paragraph. In the th- in third per- paragraph, and all the way through the passage, he basically says, if you focus on what God is like and all that he has done in Christ, it will keep you in the place of thankfulness and joy and humility, and it will stir you up towards God. And that will stir you up towards growth and godliness. And it will keep you from getting off one of the self-righteousness exits on the way towards being like Jesus. I mean, if you just go through this passage, right? In verse 2, that God has multiplied grace and peace in us through our knowledge of Christ. That we've been given everything that we need for life and godliness. That through Christ, we can, we can actually share in the divine nature itself. That through that, we can escape the corruption that is in the world. Which if you believe it is... It is a killing corruption. That's really good news, right? That we can partake in real virtue and we can actually learn to love like Christ. I mean, does that that do anything for you? I'm not saying you're loving, right? It's not saying I'm a loving person. What it's saying is, is that it's possible for me to actually love some people like Jesus. Now, any heart, any mind, any person that has been, that believes in Jesus at all, on some level, that's going to do something for you. 
it's going to, you're going to think, that's really possible. That is amazing. Now, you'll have another part of you, the worldly part, that's like, that's not that amazing, because you're going to have to do all this stuff. And but there will be part of you that will be drawn to it. Right? That you can have spiritual fruitfulness and productivity, right? He says, if you do these things, not only will you never fail, but you, it, they'll keep you from being unproductive and barren. Your, your life will be fruitful. Well, if, you, if your great desire is to bear fruit, to live a life that's spiritually fruitful, that's really exciting. Right? That you can have spiritual sight. You can be farsighted in faith and see what God has spoken and shown about himself rather than being what he said calls nearsighted and blind. Right? He says that you can have the freedom of constantly remembering that Christ has justified and forgiven you. So that, I mean, I don't know if you've ever, ever experienced this, but they say that the best basketball players are people— in fact, you heard, have you heard like, that, they're, that their mind's on ice? That they're running as fast as they can? Their heart's beating at like 120 beats per second, but their mind is like unconscious. They're not thinking about it. They're just there. Those are the people that can like run as fast as they can down the court and just drain something. And you're like, how do you get your motor skills? How do you get that all working together? And here's why. Because they're mentally at peace. They're not even thinking about it. And you see, you can be working with all your gracious striving towards godliness and your heart in terms of your standing and where you stand before God and are you a good enough person and is everything going to work out for me and is my life going to be— all that can shut up and be quiet because you can remember what Christ has done and what your real standing is and what your life is really for. And Jesus can say, because if you don't love mammon and you love me, then why are you worried about what you're going to wear? You don't have to be worried about what you're going to wear. You don't have to be worried about what you're going to eat. You don't have to worry about who's going to hire you. You don't have to worry about what our immigration policy is. You don't have to worry about—you don't have to worry. You can work towards all your duties, but your mind and heart doesn't have to be all a jumble. You can rest in God. You can find peace, right? You can be assured in your election and a calling, and you can realize that— Jesus has promised and given us, like, you are awaiting a rich welcome, right? What he's saying is, like, listen, if you, if you believe in Jesus, you're not going to eke into heaven. I know there are people who, think, who are here who are like, like, you're, you're thinking, like, in judgment, I'm going to get off on a, on, a, on a gospel technicality. Like, I'm going to get there, and Jesus is going to basically say this. Okay, you have basically been a catastrophic disappointment, okay? That's what you are. But, I mean, you did believe in me, and it was, you know, it, it, was, it was sincere. Like, you, you believed in me. And I said that I would save you on the basis of that. And so the, 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 the heaven, the scullery-made door to heaven is over there, you know, right? The back door is over there. You can go in, right? And it's fine. Right? What Peter's saying is, no, no, no. Those who have received a faith as precious as ours, that we await a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of the Savior. And you see, if we, if we keep our striving f focused on that, then how we build these virtues is focused on what Jesus has done, his very, right, his very great and precious promises. That's what all those are, right? If we stay focused on how our knowledge of Christ and by his own glory and goodness, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through these we would share and participate in the divine nature and therefore escape the corruption of the world, we can make every effort, and we can be very eager to make our calling and election sure and to grow in true virtue. 
and, and be full in our hearts and not choked and tired and anxious and resentful. We can be emotionally free in a way we never thought possible and yet growing in true virtue in a way we never thought we'd be capable. That is the upside down, backwards and strange way God transforms the human person. It is not the way you would have set it up. It's not the way I would have set it up. It is so much wiser so much less blind and so full of generous graciousness. And believing that he is everything we need in these ways is the only way to get out of the choking stranglehold of worldliness, of mammon, of idolatry. It's only when Jesus is that much enough that you can put everything with him and you can really let the other way go. The way of having two gods, the way of having two religions, Jesus and Mammon, is a way of strangulation, choking anxiety, and ultimately resentment and hatred towards God, even while you're believing in Jesus. That's what Jesus says. But if you will turn loose that idol of Mammon, and you will look to Christ alone, knowing that he's given us everything that we need, everything that we need, you can be free. And you can find a capacity for godliness through everything he's given us that you never dreamed was humanly possible in you. Things you've given up on long ago. And it will lead us to a fruitful and productive life in Christ Jesus, filled with the kind of blessing and joy that he gives in that path. Let's pray. Fathers, we take a few minutes now and try to reflect on some of this stuff. I pray that each person in this room would be able to hear something from you imperfectly mediated through my personality. I pray they'd look at the text itself and see what you are saying through Peter. I pray that you'd use some of the things that I've said to help but I pray that right now you would, you would begin to free people from, who may have been stuck for decades, who may have no idea what to do in friendships or relationships with kids or parents or marriages or relationships of different kinds, who, who are, feel stuck in their job and feel like that's controlling their anxieties, who are concerned about what's happening in the world. I pray for in all these things that you would bring us back to a very, the very simple questions about are you everything that we need? Do we have two religions? Really? Why do we feel so choked and smothered? Are we resentful towards you? Are we full of anxiety and worry? Have you given us very great and precious promises? Holy Spirit, please come and do something in us right now as we take these minutes to reflect in Jesus' name. Amen.